Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this opportunity to study your word. Your word is truth. This is what we are sanctified in even, Father. Thank you so much for revealing this truth to us through the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your continued patience with us, Father, your loving kindness, your faithfulness to your own plan, so that we might be instruments, vessels to bring glory to you, Father. We know that is the ultimate goal. Thank you for the opportunity to partake in this wonderful plan of yours. We pray especially, though, for those, Father, that we might run into in this world, in this short time that we're given by you, by grace, to walk on this earth, to try to save some souls. What a privilege that is, Father. May we never become familiar with it, but take advantage of it each and every day, each and every moment of each and every day, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to make all this a reality in our lives, something that we can embrace. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Okay, is that the only AC on? Okay, just running on high. Is it on economical? Okay, good. Put it on economical because cool is too loud. That's why it's loud. This evening's message title is, Why are the Apostles So Encouraging? By Grace They Were Prepared, Part 27. Uh, I want to do a quick review of Tuesday's lesson, and uh, yes, I do reviews of review lessons, and it's all good. Did you miss the memo on the value of reviews? If you didn't, here's a wonderfully stated point for you to chew on up here on the board. It came out on Tuesday regarding grace. Review is an exhibition of God's patience with us. Just think about that. Review is an exhibition of God's patience with us. He doesn't have to review. These are his lessons. It's his plan. It's his time. It's his timing. Uh, we're His. We're our Master's slaves. I mean, our Lord, our Great Shepherd, can shepherd us any way He deems fit. And so, if He says review, then it's by grace that He's giving you that extra time to let it sink in. For the sake of amplifying this thought up here on the board on divine patience, Think about this. This is a big deal. Mere humanity cannot even understand the depths of God's patience due to the fact that mankind is unable to understand all the ways that God withholds warranted discipline. How do you know what, you're, what you actually deserve? All the little nasty little thoughts and the little quips you have throughout the day and all the sinning you've done throughout even a single day. How do you put that into perspective? You don't even know the ripple effect of such things. 
And so it's actually not even possible for us to fully comprehend how very patient our God is. And that really makes and puts things into perspective as well. Mere humanity cannot even understand the depths of God's patience due to the simple fact that we are unable to understand all the ways that God withholds warranted discipline. On the notion of patience, we must be fair to understand divine perspective on this. Now, I'm going to come at this from a different angle. Um, and this is for your, for your education. Scott, go ahead and shut that off. It's, it's like 60-something degrees out, isn't it? Yeah. On the, notions of, on the notion of patience, we must be fair to understand the divine perspective on this. Uh, in other words, how do you, when I say God's patient with you, what do you think? You think in terms of your own filter, right? You say, oh, I know what patience is because I have to be patient with somebody else. And you think that that's how God is patient with you. But let me give you some perspective on this. We must be fair to understand divine perspective on this as a function of the simple fact that God is not bound by the construct of time. Right? God is not bound by the construct of time. So here's a maturity, I'll call it a maturity principle because uh, for some of you, you might not be able to digest it right away, and that's all right. If you were to really think about it, patience is a word. It's in the Bible, right? We know it is. But it's a word that God affords. We finite, sequentially oriented, sentient creatures. I know that's a multiple. What I'm trying to say is that Patience is something that God expresses in man's own manner of thinking. When he says, I'm patient, it means something to us because we're bound by the construct of time. But God's not bound by the construct of time. God himself isn't bound by time. So the idea of, or the concept of patience from God's perspective is quite different than it is for mankind. Just some food for thought. Go to 2 Peter 3.8. 2 Peter 3.8, because we're going to read about patience again this evening to kick things off. But it's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Second Peter 3.8. I believe we hit this on Tuesday. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with, and of course Peter's one of the apostles, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Now, I don't know about you, but a thousand years to me is a really long time. I mean, I've only been alive 48 years, and it seems like a pretty long time. That's like, you know, almost 20 times, more than 20 times longer than that. So, but to God, eh, whatever, it's the same as one day, because he's not bound by the construct of time. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's interesting, then. Up here on the board, I'll give you some more... Um, insight on this, on divine patience. 
In theology, we classify this, and it doesn't matter if you know this word, as an anthropopathism, which really means we ascribe something human, a human emotion or a passion to a deity. That's what an anthropopathism is. So in, uh, in theology, godly patience is an anthropopathism. In other words, it's expressed in a way that humans can relate to it, but the funny thing is, is that it is really something for our benefit, not God's, because God's not bound by the construct of time. So if the concept of patience implies time, then patience to a God that isn't bound by time is something foreign to man who is bound by time. So you have to think about that. However that manifests in your own soul, I'm not going to teach any further on it, but I want you to think about that, that patience to God is different than it is to us. It doesn't mean that it's different in the sense that he doesn't, he's not a superset because he understands exactly how we perceive patience from God. And he's orchestrated it so that we would, and he's designed his creatures so that they would have the faculties to be able to understand and appreciate and give thanks to the patience of God. But you've got to understand he's bigger than that. A thousand years is nothing to him. He doesn't, he's not even bound by the construct of time. So it gets you thinking in a certain way um, that is more consistent with the God of the universe and how he deals even with his creatures. Now, again, I realize for some of you, you're already like, oh, man, that's like brain-twisting type thinking. And it kind of is. But that's the way it is. If the concept of patient implies time, then patience to a God that isn't bound by time is something foreign to man who is bound by time. The point being made here is that when we read about patience in the Bible, we ought to know that it is something that God the Holy Spirit authored for the sake of man's limited abilities. And I, again, I don't want you to overthink it right now. It's just food for thought. That was a last-minute insertion as I was preparing tonight. I was just thinking, I said, no. Oh. You want me to give it to him? Go for it. Um, it's not going to. Um, it's not going to stick with some of you, and that's cool. It's all right. Second Peter three nine. Again, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Peter is saying that time is short. That's what he's saying. As far as it depends on you, you don't have to understand uh, supernatural, divinely, um, or divine patience even in every regard. It's impossible, as I've been teaching already. But what he is saying is you should respond to that which God has given you, uh, which is time. And he's saying time is short. We never know exactly what the Lord is going or when the Lord, Lord is going to finish up the, this, let's call it the human experiment. You don't know. I mean, the rapture could happen right now or 10 minutes from now or 10 years or 10,000 years from now. I mean, who knows? Nobody knows. But we know that time is short. So 
It's the way that He gives us and reveals to us the things that we need to know. If you don't know when the Lord's coming back, well, how are you supposed to live then? Imminently. That's the word we use in theology. Imminently. As if He could return at any moment or He could return a hundred years from now. You don't know. So what does God say? He says, while I'm being patient, which is another construct I give you to live on, even the word imminent implies the construct of time. I'm getting really abstract now, but I'm gonna, I want you to live in Christ's imminent return. How about that? How about you can't understand everything that I've got going on? It's possible for you to understand everything I've got going on. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to live like today is the last day on earth. And I want you to live every day that way. And I want you to take care of people in need. And I want you to think about people in need. And I want you to think about somebody else other than yourself. And I want you to think about the things I'm asking you to think about. I want you to have um, my heart, says the Lord. Verse 11. Since all these things are be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? A good question to ask yourself. If you're supposed to be living imminently, how should, you, how should your conduct and godliness be? What kind of people ought you to be? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the God, uh, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Ultimately, all of this is for the sake of seeing souls saved, in other words. <clears throat> Just as also our beloved brother, think of um, the parable of the fig tree that I taught on, on Sunday, that even Christ into... Oh, actually, I didn't teach that, did I? That's my blog. <gasps> I let it out. Anyways, <laughs> if you think of the parable of the fig tree, now that I let the cat out of the bag, Jesus Christ intercedes for um, God's people, Israel, uh, and asks for patience from God. And so um, that reminds me of this. Regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. In other words, Lord God, can you wait a little longer? so that more souls can be saved. Just as also, that's what it means by we regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Ultimately, it's for the sake of seeing souls saved. And that's how you should think about it. Every day is an opportunity to evangelize someone. Honest to goodness, I mean, even as a pastor, the most exciting thing in my life is the po possibility that I could possibly evangelize somebody. That's like the greatest thing of, of anything on this planet. Seriously. The greatest thing of anything on this planet, I believe, is to evangelize someone. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote you, as also in his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures, to their own destruction. And I was talking to Scott about this, or to Scott about this before class, just as a side note. 
Remember, this is Peter, the apostle speaking, who walked with Jesus Christ, who knew the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ and his gospel. This should be encouraging in the sense that an apostle, towards the latter days of his life, conceded that some things are difficult to understand in the Bible. It's not like Peter wouldn't have heard or read even the words of Paul. And what did he say? He said, yeah, there are some arguments that Paul has to make because of the complexity of those opposed to the simple gospel itself that are going to be confusing to you. And that's okay. Because the gospel isn't supposed to be confusing. The only reason it's complex to some people is because our enemies have attacked it and made it complex. And sometimes it takes a little work to unravel the complexities that were introduced into the scene, into the gospel itself, and perverted it. So again, this is encouraging in the sense that an apostle, Peter here, towards the latter days of his life, conceded that some things are difficult to understand in the Bible, and he particularly points to the epistles of Paul. And this does, as I mentioned, dovetail perfectly into the manner in which I've been teaching you of the Pauline epistles. In particular, in, or in particular, that the complexity of his arguments were due to the complexity of the perversions he had to deal with. You see, look, the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually very simple. If it wasn't, the youngest of us that are able to couldn't understand it. And by the way, how much do you think you can understand when you don't even have the apparatus to understand spiritually appraised things? The only thing we have to understand is the gospel itself to be saved. You don't have to understand all the arguments and the complexities around those who say the gospel is garbage or those that are trying to pervert the gospel. You don't have to understand what the early church went through with the Jews or the Gnostics or with Docetism or any of these other perversions that had come in. You don't have to understand those things. But Paul did because he had to deal with them firsthand. But not every believer has to deal with those things. I have to deal with them. That's what I was telling Scott. I said, I feel like a kinship to Paul because to me, America is a lot like, say, the church at Corinth. It's very wealthy, and there's a whole lot of perversion and uh, intellectualism and rationalism that permeates the churches that you're infected by every single day. All this complex thinking and science and, you know, does God really exist because there was like this big explosion you know, fish walked out of the water and be, you know, what? Wait a minute, what? I've been getting taught this since I was a little kid. That stuff didn't exist necessarily back in the day. These are new introductions, new perversions to the gospel. And so the complexity, in other words, if, if, that, if you've never heard some of the complexities that are in your own soul, you'd never have to deal with them. And that's all Peter's saying. He's just saying it's okay if you don't understand everything about the Bible because a lot of the things that Paul had to deal with, you've never even thought about. Right? It's true. Some of you have never thought about the things that Paul had to deal with. 
Some of you are saying, why did he talk so much about justification by faith in Romans? Why did he spend all that time? It's not that it's not truth, because it absolutely is truth, but the problem was, in context, there were people who were saying you were justified by works. Same thing with Galatians. They went back to Judaism. You see, there's always that context, but you might be saying, but I was never a Jew, so I don't have that problem. Exactly. So you may not understand when he's talking to the Galatians exactly what he's saying. What does he mean, who bewitched you? It, I don't understand it. That's right, because you were never Jewish. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm getting at? And so you don't have that context. And so that's the importance of understanding the Pauline epistles in context. If you want the gospel, you go to the gospels. That's where the simple, pure gospel is laid out by the Messiah himself. See, the problem is there's so many churches around here and so many churches that think they're all that who take and twist the Pauline epistles into knots. And it really does lend itself to additional complexities that at the end actually turn off potential Christians, at least for a time. Turn off well-intentioned Christians because now they start feeling like a failure. But I don't understand everything that that Paul's getting at. And what did Peter say? He said, it's okay. There are things that you'll never understand. So all of this dovetails perfectly into the manner in which I've been teaching you as well on the Pauline epistles. Again, that these complexity of Paul's arguments were due to the complexities introduced by our enemies. That's why he had long diatrobes and dissertations about this or that doctrine. The doctrines themselves are actually very simple. Of course you're justified by faith. Of course God gives you faith that saves. How could you do that on your own? Of course you have to repent. How are you going to stick with one thing and have another? Of course these things are true. But they're very simple, aren't they? Even a kid can understand the gospel. Not a kid kid, but you know what I'm saying. A younger person can understand the gospel. So all that compared to the simplicity of Jesus' words. Look at verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thanking God, by the way, for His patience. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. As the Spirit's been mentioning, patience is a function of grace. And anytime we see God's grace, we must think the following up here on the board. This came out on Tuesday as well. God's glory is seen through His grace. Exodus 33, 18, 19, John 1, 14, 2 Corinthians 4, 15, Ephesians 1, 2 to 6. Go to Exodus 33, 18. We saw this on Tuesday. Exodus 33, 18. You have to ask yourself, I ask myself this all the time, because I often run into people, I ran into someone today actually, that just thrives on complicating the Bible. And I have to ask myself, why? Why do you keep wanting to complicate things? Why? 
because their flesh wants it complicated. Because once the Bible becomes something it was never meant to be, and then there can be echelons of knowledge, you see. And now there's stratification, and then that's what we call creature credit. That's why. But nonetheless, God's glory is seen through His grace. Exodus 33:18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. All right, he said. So he said to him, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim, excuse me, the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. How about that? You want to see my glory? Watch my grace, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. You want to see my glory? I'll show you my compassion. That's not complicated, is it? Go to John 1.14. John 1.14. Do you have to know everything that Paul wrote about to the Colossians or the Philippians or Ephesians? Do you have to know all that stuff to understand this stuff? The answer is a big fat no. No, you do not need to know all of those things that Paul had to deal with to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are they helpful? Do they edify? Of course they do. Do they help you deal with it? Of course they do. Do they help you grow in the grace and knowledge of God? Of course they do. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, the point on the board God's glory is seen through His grace. Go to 2 Corinthians 4.15. 2 Corinthians 4.15. I'm very saddened um, by Christianity today. Very saddened um, that there's a whole host of people that are enduring self-inflicted wounds that have put themselves back into a jail cell that doesn't even exist, put themselves on a treadmill that doesn't exist. Second Corinthians 4.15 For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Again, you want to see God's glory? Look for His grace among His people. Go to Ephesians 1, verse 2. Ephesians 1, verse 2. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Again, the point being amplified is up on the board. God's glory is seen through His grace. The more He can grace a person out, the more He brings glory to Himself. That's the point. 
And grace does have a practical sense to it. Not everything is unseen. There's a lot of fruit that is seen that points right back to God and His grace. I mean, how are you here this evening? I was just talking to Tommy. He's got foot aches, back aches, stomach aches. He's got all kinds of things going on over there. But there he sits. And you're like probably close to an hour, 45 minutes there. And there he sits. To me, that's God bringing glory to himself through a vessel who's willing to make the trek. Nothing special about Tommy other than he's humble enough to accept his calling and whatever's on his life. I think of Frank. I think of my sister Kathy. I mean, you know. I think of anybody out there, any of you that spent today possibly even thinking about evangelizing someone. That put your selfishness aside long enough to start thinking about other people in a way that brings glory to God. I think about that. That's a miracle, knowing some of you. I'm serious. It's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle that some of you actually think that way now. You didn't always think that way. Ten years ago, maybe, you didn't think that way. But now, all of a sudden, you're bringing glory to God by bringing the gospel out to a world that's in desperate need of it. And nobody else seems to care about it anymore today. Him and I were driving, I said, you know, I'm like driving today, and I'm like, you know, it's hard, really hard. The only thing I can think about is like Sodom and Gomorrah, the days of Noah. I have to look around and say, it's possible that everybody I just drove by which is like hundreds of people on a road, could possibly burn in the lake of fire forever and ever, or at least the vast majority of them. That really bothers me a lot. Nobody wants to hear about Jesus Christ anymore. It's unbelievable. The world's telling them, bring glory to yourself. Be an idol. I watched a show on, um, this is why you shouldn't watch shows, but I watched a show, I usually watch documentaries in all fairness, because I want to learn. And I watched a documentary on a famous uh, comedian last night, supposedly the comedian of comedians. And uh, everybody's focusing on, you know, he's got just reams of people like, oh, he was the greatest, and he was this, and it was amazing. And I'm saying, in my head, I'm saying, okay, so what about, what did he sacrifice? What does it profit a man? Right? to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul, you know, like. So here's a guy who gained the whole world, has everybody's adoration. Yet he made a mockery of marriage. He was like married and divorced and had God, God knows how, seven times or something like that. He made a mockery of marriage. He was miserable. He was a, um, he was a, a, and I'm not picking on people that are addicts, but you know what I'm saying. His life was a mess. He was an addict. He almost, he almost burned himself to death. He had all these crazy things, right? But yet, people held him up. They called him an icon. And I'm saying, this is ridiculous. He wanted nothing to do with Christ, as far as I could tell. Matter of fact, his fruit was disgusting. And that's only one guy. I watched another guy, same thing. Everybody holds up these people, but nobody ever taught. The world, you see, the world doesn't talk about what they forfeited to be an icon or an idol in America. The world just holds it up like a big old carrot. No glory to God, all glory to the idol. That's what I see when I watch these things. And I see well-intentioned Christians idolizing people 
idolizing people. You know, like the Patriots, Tom Brady and all that crap? He's just a guy. I'm not, who knows if he's even saved? Who knows? Does anybody care? No, not really. People spending thousands and thousands of dollars to go get season tickets to watch idols play. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that if your perspective's right. But if your perspective's wrong, there's everything wrong with it. Do you follow? And that's what this world gives us. There's no glory to God. Everybody in this world, I just drive by, I'm like, it's like everybody is completely spun up in the world system. And there's no glory going to God. And then you go try to evangelize them. It's like you're swearing at them. They'd rather, you, they'd rather you swear at them, honestly, than say Jesus to them. I really think that. It's unbelievable. But nonetheless, you want to see God's glory, you see it through His grace. In a more practical sense, we might say this up here on the board, <clears throat> the power of God's grace. Because God's grace never fails, His plans are always attained. For I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work and you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. As I mentioned a few lessons ago, it's often not until we look back on our lives that we realize that God's absolute truths are just that, absolute. You know what? If Jesus Christ himself said a true believer perseveres. You want to know what? A true believer perseveres. I don't want to hear any more about it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. If he said it, then guess what? It's true. Now here's the problem. It seems that while he's sanctifying us in time, our human rationalism is given the space, let's call it, to speculate, invent, and reason as to all the so-called logical reasons why his plan might fail. Arguably, among the biggest false doctrines on this topic ever invented that I know of is the doctrine of the so-called carnal Christian. That is to say that man's will is somehow greater than God's ability to change a person absolutely at salvation which implies that man's free will is able to trample the new creature so completely that it leaves God's good work and sanctification totally impotent. And that would call Jesus Christ, who said a true believer will what? Persevere, a liar. And I don't know about you, but I don't, I'm, not in the, I'm not in the business of calling Jesus Christ a liar because he's never changed. I'm in the business of understanding that I'm an idiot and that I don't know everything. And if the Bible says it in clear ink, then guess what? It's actually true. I don't care what my ridiculous, and trust me, I have one rational mind. I don't care what my mind says about how much this seems to be wrong or that can't be true or how's God going to pull that off. That's impossible. Now I start sounding like Oprah. So therefore, the Bible must be cast off because that's not, that can't be or, or this can't be. If it says it in the Bible, guess what? It's true. And if it says it in absolute language, guess what? It's absolutely true. And if the Bible says that true believers will persevere, you know what? 
they will persevere. Otherwise, we call them apostates. But God, let me tell you something. God never saves someone and then becomes impotent in power, unable to sanctify them. That is a lie. Not only that, not only is that a twisted, ungodly doctrine, the reality is that God changes us so that we do want to follow Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't exist in a person, then guess what? They're not saved either. So this is a flat-out lie that Satan would love for you to accept as truth. Why? Probably for some of you that have maybe kids or something that are idiots. It lets you sleep at night and say, well, I think they're saved even though they want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. It makes me able to sleep at night. Or it lets me be, continue to be a coward and not approach them and say, hey, you know what? You might have a problem, son or daughter. We need to have a little chat about this. I know what I used to tell you in the past about being saved, you know, that little prayer thing and, you know, once saved and all this kind of crap and, you know, there's no such thing as fruit, there's no such thing as perseverance and you can decide, you can be a carnal Christian. You know what? I was wrong. And if you're not willing to have that conversation with at least your kids, I'll tell you to your face, you're a coward. A coward. Because those are lies from the pit of hell. So those are lies that, that Satan would love for you to accept as truth. But here's the truth, my friends. To lie like that is to call all three persons of the Godhead liars, which is blasphemy. Here's what the Bible has to say about God's ability to sanctify you in time. Go to John 17, 17. John 17, 17. So some of you are getting a wake-up call, which is cool. It's all good. It's all meant to bring glory to God, not you. John 17, 17. How do you get sanctified? In truth. In truth. Sanctify them in truth? What? Your word is truth. Who said that? Jesus Christ. The letters are read in most of your Bibles, right? Yeah, Jesus Christ said that. That was his prayer his intercessory prayer to God the Father. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's how you're sanctified. So as the Spirit brought out on Tuesday's lesson, our job seems to be quite a simple prospect up here on the board. And this is not a novel concept from this pulpit, at least. Experiencing our position. In a sense, we have to, quote, catch up to all that God's done in us at salvation. We have to learn, in other words, just like the apostles did. Remember the five elements, like understanding, humility, etc.? We have to learn. But the reality is we're actually catching up, in a sense, to what God has already started in us and in many ways accomplished in us at salvation. This is where our hope and even our excitement lies. I don't know about you, but to me that's very exciting. The fact that he's willing to patiently wait on my slowness to sanctify me even more and give me more and more opportunities each and every day to bring glory to him as a what 
otherwise a, a useless vessel. On the flip side is the cold hard truth that many so-called quote Christian churches don't want to swallow. That is, that a person who's not motivated to do this has never been saved. Yeah. To suggest otherwise would be like calling God or saying, all right, to suggest otherwise would be like God creating, imagine this, a great white shark and then supposing it's never hungry. When we're saved, our daily sustenance is oriented to the new creature, which only thirsts and hungers for the bread of life. It has a voracious appetite for truth. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. What do you think the new creature wants to eat? It's not what the so-called professing Christian wants to eat. Not the one that goes out into the world every single day and stuffs their face with the food from this world. And I'm talking figuratively and literally. It vomits that stuff out. It doesn't want the world's food. It wants the very bread of life. Remember, the new creature is what stays with you forever and ever. It's been changed to the point that whatever it is right now is going to be the same as it is in heaven. So what do you think it can run on? What do you think it wants to run on? The bread of life. Again, experiencing opposition. A new creature does not live on worldly food, whether literal or figuratively speaking. It vomits it out, preferring wholly the very bread of life, the Word of God. So again, to say that God will change someone and then they'll never desire to eat the, the bread of life is like saying a, God will create a great white shark and he's never hungry. The cruddy thing for we believers is that the God of this world sets a place at his table every day and the food looks really good. Go to 1 Corinthians 10.21. 1 Corinthians 10.21. So it's not like we believers are immune to wanting to, you know, dine out every so often. Eat some food that's not so good for us. Right? Huh? Huh? Yeah, you know. You go home tonight, you turn on the television, guess what you're doing? You're eating food that's not good for you. You're probably better off going to McDonald's and having two Big Macs. At least physically, you'll be able to do something with it within a day. But that stuff that gets in your head from that show or that movie or that book that you're reading that's ungodly, it has a tendency to stick there. But it's so attractive. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed seriously, the most attractive music, and I'm not talking about the lyrics, I'm talking about the music, is not on Caleb. The most talented musicians typically do not end up playing Christian songs. I'm not talking about like Mercy Me and you know, casting crime. I'm not talking about s solid music. I'm talking about the average musician on Caleb. In terms of their musical abilities, I hate to say it, they tend to be lower in terms of quality than what's on 92 Pro FM. 
or 94HJY or all these amazing, you know, talented singers. I mean, their voices are like ridiculous. Their ability to play guitar and piano, it's unbelievable. And they're all agents of the God of this world. So it's very easy to turn the channel, in other words. is an appeal that the God of this world focuses very hard on attracting you. Even something like music. And I know I'm offended. Some of you are I can't believe you brought up K-Love. We'll probably have to listen to it at home now. All right? can't believe you threw K-Love under the bus. I'm not talking. Bill, Bill and I had the same conversation. Bill said the same thing about K-Love, right? He's like, I can't listen to it. It's just not good music. Right? Right, Bill? Back me up. Don't be saying, oh, that was before. It's true. I'm just saying, I just can't get over the, the, the melodies and stuff. Anyways. The lyrics are wonderful. Most of the time. But you know what I'm saying. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So cut it out. Don't think that you can, you know, dine with the demons and then be unaffected. Your new creature is going to want to vomit that out, but your, your flesh is going to feed on it. What Paul was saying in context is twofold. That is the obvious physical eating of food. If you look at the context, we don't have time to do it, but the obvious physical eating of food, sacrifice to idols and pagan rituals was in view, but also the spiritual eating of food <clears throat> that is unholy. That is to say that fellowshipping under the premise of ungodliness is not a cup we should be drinking from. Some of you need to change your friends and who you hang out with. Seriously. Like, not tomorrow. Not when it's more convenient. Not after your birthday, because you, they usually give you good birthday presents. Or not after the 4th of July, although that never went by, yeah. Not after the next holiday, because they throw rad parties and raves and this kind of a thing. I mean, like right now. Who are you hanging around with? Who are you spending any time with? Seriously. Who are you drinking with? Who are you having a little cup of tea with? Spiritually, what are you talking about? Godly things? Bringing glory to God? Or ungodly things? That's between you and the Lord. As the Spirit so succinctly said on Tuesday, duh, why can't we remember that this is the devil's world that we live in? Why can't we? Why don't we just wake up in the morning and go, Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for another day to breathe. I'm breathing well. For me, it's like my, I can speak again. It's amazing. Some of you are like, no, it's not. You know, whatever. Right? <laughs> Someone laughed, really. Who was it? John. Why can't we just wake up and say, thank you, Lord, for waking me up. Give me another opportunity. Maybe to win a soul. That'd be, that'd be cool. That'd be fun. Your will be done. I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to try to kick doors open. You present it to me. Why can't we just remember that? Most of us set our day planners by the world. Hmm, going to hang out with Jimmy because he's an ungodly bastard. I'm going to hang around with um, Judy because she's an ungodly bitch. I'm talking about dogs. I'm going to hang around with so-and-so because they're ungodly as hell. Oh, and then at the end of it all, at 730, I've got to make it to church. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. Depends if not if I have a buzz. 
So you had all day to plan this, and this is where you ended up? You had all week to plan this, and you premeditated the whole thing, and then says, well, maybe, just maybe I'll have the energy for God? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? You know what's wrong with you? You like those people more than you like Jesus Christ sometimes. For some of you, more often than you'd like to share. But why can't we just remember that this is the devil's world that we live in? And this prompted me to, I cannot believe I'm out of time almost. I didn't even got to the actual lesson. But whatever, this one, you guys are so sick, you must have had to hurt all this. Got me swearing up here. When I was listening to Tuesday's message, um, the point on the board prompted me to take pause and just think, you know. And I wanted to share. I put this on social media, so some of you are friends of me on Facebook already have seen this, but oh well, too bad. Imagine how uncomplicated people's thoughts would be if movies, TV, and the Internet disappeared. Just for starters seems to be the primary means of infiltration in this, in at least our country, right? Is that fair? Movies, TV, into, how about radio too? I'll throw radio in there too. Movies, TV, radio, and books, and the internet. In other words, media, modern media. Imagine if all those things went away. Imagine how uncomplicated our thoughts would be. I so often say to myself, where the heck did that awful thought just come from? You ever had that happen to you? Driving down the road, you're like, what did, where did that just, that is so evil. Like, for real. Like, way out there, evil. I'm like, stop. Stop it. I get, like, you know, internal conversations. Stop with the ridiculousness, you flesh, you ridiculous, disgusting, perverted, uh, evil, vile, angry, malicious flesh. It's unbelievable. It won't go away. Who will free me from this body of death? I'm shackled, I'm shackled to this stinky mess. It's gross. I know it looks good. <laughs> that was funny. I know it looks good. Get it? No? All right. I'll keep moving. See what happens when you spend too much time alone, Scott? I so often say to myself, where the heck did that awful thought just come from? And I'm angry about its presence in my head. And so often it's quite easy to trace it right back to something I saw or heard through media. We are so very foolish thinking we can walk through a sewer and come out smelling like roses. Even if we hold our breath the stink adheres to our clothes, which means we're stuck with it for a while. We never come out of the experience unaffected. Never. Never. It never happens. We always come out affected somehow. And we stink. And we smell. And it's because we've made poor choices and walked among idiots. But at the end of the day, this is what I'm grateful for. I thank God we have the word to wash up with every day. Thank you. Because by the end of most days, I smell. 
And I'm just so glad that he washes us up with his word, that he sanctifies us with his word. I think I'm going to end there. Are you grateful that you have the word? Okay, all of you nodding your head, I want you to go home tonight and go, delete, 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 delete the bastard, delete the bitch, delete the jackass, delete all these people. No, I'm serious. Delete all these little schedules you have in your head of meeting up with people that literally despise and spit on the Lord who saved your butt. Cut it out. Especially you young people. Engage with all kinds of ungodliness. Cut it the hell out. I'm trying to do you a favor. I'm speaking it to you as a friend, friend of a friend of a friend. I'm trying to save you a lot of heartache. Been there, done that. Cut it the hell out. Get it off. What did Jesus Christ say? If, if your eye's bad, hack it out. If your hand's bad, cut it off. What do you think he was saying? Get rid of the junk, the garbage in your life. Stop thinking you can manage with it. You're so pathetic and weak. You cannot do it. You cannot do that thing. And some of you are right now going, no, I can justify that. Yep, 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 I can justify that. No, 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 because you know what? If I, don't, if I leave the jackass behind, I can't evangelize them. Yeah, when's the last time you tried to evangelize them? Oh, well, well, it takes time, you see. This is taking time. I've been working on it. You know, I've been working on it over drinks. <laughs> Stop playing games. Move on. Find somebody you actually can evangelize that's actually interested in the Lord. Seriously. Find somebody who's actually interested in the Lord and hang out with them. Find somebody who's open and hang out with them. And if they're family, have the damn conversation. Stop being a coward. Have the damn conversation before it's too late. I have a grandmother that's on her deathbed right now. Every time anybody talks about it, I say, Give her the gospel, because we don't know. Give her the gospel. Who cares about her physical therapy, in a sense, you know what I mean? Give her the gospel. I'm serious. What does it matter? What good is physical therapy in hell? Give her the gospel. If you love these people, give them the stinking, give them the gospel. What do you think you're here for? To play golf with them? Seriously, give them the gospel. To drink with them? Amen? You know that passion I'm talking about? Yeah, let it burn. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to study your word this evening. Thank you for keeping it simple, keeping it real. What a blessing it is, Father. Thank you for being honest with us always. And thank you for empowering this vessel to speak the truth to ears that need to hear it. We ask for traveling mercies as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.